Bulavan this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Elisha Foon. Coming up. The most important thing, of course, being the, the peaceful uh, future of the Blue Continent. New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters meets with Pacific leaders in Fiji. Also, a New Zealand government review of the Māori and Pacific admission scheme is being called a waste of time by a Pacific health leader. Not at all safe, and so the, the mind felt compelled to try and keep people away from that, so then it fights between security and local strategies. The Pukera gold mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province resumes operations this Friday. New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs Winston Peters has set the tone for the coalition government's Pacific engagement, making his first overseas trip to Fiji over the weekend. RNZ Pacific editor Kuroi Hawkins accompanied the minister and his delegation and filed this report. Winston Peters says New Zealand has an important role to play in keeping the Pacific region on a peaceful pathway. In Suva on Friday and Saturday, the Deputy Prime Minister met with Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka of Fiji, the Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, and also held an informal breakfast meeting with the President of Tuvalu, Kausia Natano. Talks covered economic resilience, climate action, trade and tourism, labour mobility and people-to-people links. Despite a busy domestic schedule, Winston Peters says as foreign minister, he wanted to get out into the region as quickly as possible. It was one of the most important things that we need to be dealing with going forward. First of all, cooperating with Fiji as a critical country and where the Pacific Islands Forum is placed and looking forward to some of the things we have to work on going into the future. The most important thing, of course, being the, the peaceful uh, future of the blue continent and the key role of New Zealand and Fiji in that. I believe we have a big one this. Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka says Winston Peters' return as Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of New Zealand is good news for the Pacific. The pair held their bilateral meeting at the Grand Pacific Hotel, the first for Winston Peters and for the coalition government since its formation. Sitiveni Rambuka says it's good to have someone who knows the Pacific sitting in Wellington. Uh, over the years, uh, with our association, you understand where we are, where we are trying to get to, and uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a really good news for us in the Pacific to know that a friend of the Pacific, a uh, person of the Pacific, has been uh, appointed Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs. On Saturday, Winston Peters held an informal breakfast meeting with the president of Tuvalu, Kausia Natano, before visiting the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat. The Forum Secretary-General, Henry Puna, says the Deputy Prime Minister has signalled the new government's seriousness about its Pacific engagement in prioritising a visit to Suva so early in his tenure. Your presence here today, Deputy Prime Minister, as part of your first official visit, sends a very clear message to all that your government will continue to prioritise the Pacific. And as a founding member of this esteemed institution, New Zealand holds a special place in the Pacific regionalism and continues to play an important and instrumental role in driving Pacific priorities within and beyond the oceanic borders of our blue Pacific. Thank you.
For all the pomp and ceremony, this was very much an introductory visit. No new announcements or commitments were made. In fact, the only real certainty came from Winston Peters effectively shelving a request from the Prime Minister of Fiji for consideration for visa-free travel to New Zealand. Uh, it's something that uh, we have listened to, but we're also a country in New Zealand that has inherited an immigration record in the last 12 months of 128,000 people that was never forecast, never predicted for the new government to handle. And so I try to make it very clear that we've got a clear and present problem we're trying to fix or work on now. Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Biman Prasad, says a visa-free Pacific would strengthen regional economies and improve security. Mr Prasad says there's growing consensus among Pacific Islands leaders that this is the way forward for the region. Uh, there is a lot more to gain you know, out of a free uh, movement of people, capital, investments. Uh, there is this huge economic potential. And apart from that, uh, I think a much more united, much more deeply uh, integrated Pacific is good for the security of the Pacific. On the aid front, Winston Peters would not be drawn on whether or not there would be changes to the focus of New Zealand's official development assistance to the Pacific under his watch, although he did say he wants biannual performance checks on Pacific cooperation arrangements to make sure things are getting done. That we get understanding and cooperation, that we don't have the uh, disparity that arose in recent times, and I think that there are a lot of things that we need to do, particularly experienced politicians, to get far more out of the Pacific Islands Corporation and ensure that uh, we have performance checks uh, on probably a six-monthly basis, that what we've set out to do is actually happening and not just drifting and drifting and nothing changes. Commenting on Winston Peters' prioritising Pacific engagement, a Pacific historian and AUT lecturer, Marco De Jong, says while Winston Peters may be well-versed in ways of Pacific politics, the coalition government's lack of Pacifica MPs and some of its policies on climate change and Pacifica communities in Aotearoa puts them on the back foot. There's already been concerns shared by a number of Pacific leaders, Palau, Sa'or, Tuvalu, around their commitment to you know, a fossil fuel-free Pacific and some of their security priorities. So New Zealand's long traded on an independent, nuclear-free and Pacific-led foreign policy. So Pacific nations will be watching very closely to see if those ideals um, are carried on by this current government. Winston Peters is back in Wellington this week, the final week of Parliament for the year, with the main event, the new government's mini-budget on Wednesday. The New Zealand government plans to review a Māori and Pacific admission scheme, despite its own Minister of Health and Pacific Peoples, Dr Shane Reti, benefiting from it. The scheme, also known as MAPAS, was established in 1972 to train more Māori and Pacifica doctors, who were historically underrepresented in the workforce. Now, as part of the ACT Party's vow to end race-based policies, MAPAS and its Otago equivalent are set to undergo review, which is a concern to medical professionals. Just last week, a group of Pacific students graduated with medical degrees and are set to enter the workforce as doctors through the help of this programme. I spoke with Sir Colin Tukuitonga, who believes, if it's not broken, why fix it? Pacific and Māori students, as compared to their Pākehā colleagues, tend to work in places uh, 
with, with Pacific uh, communities. And I'm told, for example, that Māori and Pacific uh, young ones are more likely to enter into general practice compared with their Pākehā colleagues and therefore a lot more likely to serve in Māori and Pacific uh, communities. So MAPAS is not the problem that people might uh, claim it is. In fact, it's a, a response to the selection process that has been in place over the years. But as I say, I think your colleague uh, documented the history quite well. I didn't. Um, I don't really have much more to add to that other than what I've just said. Right. Um, I thought it would be worth kind of talking about the graduation last week. Fantastic event. We yep. graduated 54 medical graduates. Uh, 20 of them were Pacific. Six were Māori and Pacific, so about half uh, Pacific origin. So we're quite excited about that. I mean, it was a fantastic event, I thought. And how important is that pathway? Uh, would it have been possible to have almost half of the graduates Māori and Pacific if it weren't for MAPAS? It would be hard to do, I imagine. If you didn't have these measures in place, uh, and affirmative action and support for Martin Pacific students, it would not have been able, uh, we wouldn't have seen those numbers. If you look at the first half of the MAPAS process, whenever it was it started in 72, uh, your colleagues' numbers showed that actually there were very few Martin Pacific students in the early days. And this is a recent uh, development, what we've just seen with the graduation of 54 of them um, last week. It was a fantastic uh, celebration. And let's kind of focus on the future as well. What does this mean for New Zealand, for our Māori and Pacific communities? There's been a lot of research done about the importance of having cultural competency and an understanding and making patients feel comfortable and safe. Um, but what does this mean for, I guess, the health outlook for our communities? Well, I've, I've, I've mentioned this a few times. The international evidence shows that if concordance is the jargon, if you have a concordance between your provider, the nurse or the doctor with the patient, you have better outcomes, not just for the patient and his or her family, but it reduces overall costs to the health system. And that finding has been reproduced in many countries around the world. So our experience is the same. If you match your doctor with the patient in terms of their language, cultural uh, competency, etc., you have better outcomes, not just for the patient, but for the whole country. And that's why the idea that both ourselves and Janine and Otago uh, try to get to is important. In other words, we want our medical workforce to reflect the society that we are or we have because we have better outcomes and it reduced the overall cost uh, of healthcare to the country. You have better outcomes for patients. In terms of the uh, MAPAS, our graduates are more likely to go. General practice is uh, primary care, community care, you know. Uh, they, they're, not, they're less likely to want to set up private practice uh, and they're more likely to work with multi providers, specific providers in general practice and primary care serving in those uh, communities. And our graduates uh, are 
not overrepresented, but they are more likely to be fellows of the College of uh, GPs, which is the primary college looking after community practices. So that much we're confident about. In other words, I think MAP has, quite apart from what we said earlier about outcomes, we know for a fact that they're less likely to leave and go to Australia, and they're more likely to work in communities with Pacific providers, uh, work in primary care. And I think that's an important dif- uh, difference as well. The Bulgaria Gold Mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province is due to restart operations this Friday after years of shutdown over lease talks. It's a mine with a colourful and at times violent past, and RNZ Pacific has been looking back at some of that activity. Massey University human geographer Professor Glenn Banks began his association with the mine when it started in the early 1990s. Here's part two of our look back at Bulgaria with Professor Banks, who spoke to Don Wiseman. It was starting around 2000, but it really started to ramp up in the, the last, yeah, from about 2005 onwards, what's referred to as illegal mining. And what was happening there was that initially it was the mine tailings from the large processing plant that were being panned by locals, largely locals initially, who were finding that the processing plant wasn't extracting all the gold from the ore that went in. So the waste from the mine actually had gold contained in it. And they were using very rudimentary techniques, standing waist deep in these tailings, getting decent amounts of gold out of that. That then led to further developments where you had people entering the mine site and particularly the open pit and accessing ores. So they would they would actually dig lumps of rock out of the open pit, take them back to the surrounding communities outside the mining area and process them. You could walk through villages at various points in time and you'd hear this ding, 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 ding. And that was people crushing by hand the ore that they'd accessed from the open pit. They'd then crush it down and then they'd use mercury basically to to process and to extract the gold from the from the ore and this turned into big business and you were starting to see significant numbers of people up to you know a thousand fifteen hundred people running around the open pit at night being chased by mine security it, it led to all sorts of vicious episodes the mine itself has got very steep walls and people were accessing some of the old tunnels the old edits that the mining company had pre previously used, some people were living in them, accessing those to to access ore. So you had people falling to their deaths on the mine walls, you had fights between different groups within these illegal miners over territorial control of different bits of the, the open pit. So it was really, really messy and complex. And again, that kind of activity really drew in additional migrants. It was part of the the reason why young guys would head up to Pogra was to get involved in the adventure and the potential money involved in in this so-called illegal mining. And it was certainly illegal in the sense that they weren't supposed to be in the pit. But the locals themselves talked about these people as being local geologists. So they weren't seen by locals as anything illegal. They were just sort of another another form of mining, accessing ore that the mining company wasn't particularly interested in. And there was a third element to this, as well as the tailings and the open pit. Porgra is a very high-grade gold mine. So 
a lot of the waste rock, the hard waste rock that they dispose of, actually still has ore in it. So you were finding, again, groups of people that would stand waiting for the dump trucks to drop the waste rock in the waste dumps, and people would sort of hang around the edges of that. And when the truck dumped the load of waste rock, they'd all swarm over it. It was it was quite a sight to see. Not at all safe. And so the, the mine felt compelled to try and keep people away from that. So again, you had fights between security and locals trying to access this waste rock. They had a fairly strong argument there, or they felt they did, in the sense that the mine didn't want this rock, so why shouldn't they have access to it? So that all created a really complex and, and unstable social environment up there. And at the same time, you had a, a, an active retreat of the national government from a lot of its responsibilities. So health and education, the, the basic line was that from the government, they never really said it. It was unspoken that, you know, Porga has got a lot of money. It's got a lot of support from uh, the mine in all sorts of areas. So why should the government really prioritise Porga? So you were seeing the pine and services up there. Public servants weren't really attracted to Porgra because of the violence that was apparent up there. So over that period of time, from the early 90s through to when I was last up there, you could see a, a, an active decline in the, the level of service delivery, the level of safety in terms of people's lives. They were being crowded out of areas by increasing numbers of people and the, the expansion of the waste dumps from the mine. So there was less land available for subsistence gardening. It was getting pretty horrendous and they were it was increasing pressure locally on the mining company to resettle significant numbers of people from the mine area. And there were a number of studies that were carried out, commissioned by the mining company that looked at this, but none of them really got very far in terms of actively um, relocating people en masse from the mining area. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, tofa soi for.